Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. I think ultimately the first thing is self-efficacy is that they can figure out, they believe that they can endure this, right? It's the ultimate saying of Ernie Zamperini when he was, when he crashed into the Indian Ocean, he said, what's the longest time anybody's ever lived in a raft in the open water? It wasn't, oh crap, what happened to me? He flipped it, okay? So I think self-efficacy is important. I think self-determination is also, what's our goal right now? If, if we are all thinking that college football season is going to look identical, it's not. Okay, so I'm not going to say let's lower the game, but let's change our scope here. Like right now, let's play the game. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D R R O B B E L L, to this number, 33. 33- Four four four. You'll get a download right away. So our guest today uh, needs, you know, needs no introduction. I didn't know if you knew that or not. Uh, <laughs> he's a clinical psychologist. Uh, I've known him for many years. We've met on uh, on the PJ tour, definitely at events. Uh, he's worked with uh, University of Alabama athletics for many years. A lot of championships teams there. Um, obviously, been on the PJ tour. Has worked with uh, winners on the PJ tour. Uh, his company is The Mind Side. I love his podcast. It's The Secret to Winning Podcast. I think it's fantastic. We'll definitely put the link in there for you to follow. Uh, his book is The Mind Side Manifesto, which I enjoy that book a lot. And uh, and one of the parts I love about this guest here is uh, his Instagram Live. I think he just rocks that, absolutely crushes it. You can check that one out every single Monday. Our guest, our first clinical psychologist, we have it on the guest here on the podcast, so 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness is uh, Dr. Brett McCabe. Doc, how are you, brother? Man, I'm good. Thanks for uh, allowing me to be here and and uh, appreciate all that you've done in your friendship over the years and your guidance and your leadership. So I'm honored to be here. Well, you're the man. Well, one picture to another. Yep. I was never as accomplished as you were, man. But um, let's, um, man, let's start with that, if, if you don't mind. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. played you played on some fantastic teams at LSU. Um, what, what's the biggest lessons from, from Coach Skip and Smoke that, that you learned from them? Well, I think the first thing was, is that the, you've got to be extremely patient. And when you're around great players, you've got to pick their minds as much as you can. And we were so good at the details and the small things and so many baseball players and some was so many baseball teams, they work on the little factors that really don't make a difference. And I remember going to a conference and coach Burtman talking about, um, you know, everybody runs through the first baseline and they break it down. They look over their right shoulder to look for an overthrow so they can take second base. Mm-hmm. Skip said, yeah, I didn't do that. I taught kids how to hit the three-run home run. And the idea was we we took on the whole mindset of how to win awareness. What are the little details that we can find an advantage over other people because of our preparation, our mental readiness to leverage to put ourselves in a better position to win. And if we could find that extra bullet, that extra arrow in the chamber, then we could be successful. 
that's what it was for us. Um, and, and we didn't, we weren't the most talented. It didn't matter what your scholarship number was. Our team was led by a bunch of preferred walk-ons, including myself. Um, I went to an all boys Catholic school in Baton Rouge. I think we've had one player from my high school on every national title team that's been through LSU and all six. Um, it's the same school that's produced Austin Nola and Aaron Nola, David DeLucci, who, um, you know, Warwick Dunn, some really, really elite athletes have come out of there, but we were really good bets um, because we were academically sound. We loved the purple and gold and we would do what it took to, to achieve success. So coach could make a long-term investment in us. So our advantage when we went on the field was always angling to figure out how we could get the advantage over you and then beat you while you were focusing on other things. We were focusing on the things that you didn't have the guts or the belief to do. And those are the easy things. Yeah. Give me, give me an example of that one, man. Well, you know, so what we would do is, for instance, you know, a starting home, home field pitcher, mm-hmm. when, when he goes out to start the game, the, there's a lot of things that are difficult. They don't have a rhythm of the game yet. The pitcher's coming out of the bullpen. They don't really know what they have. The umpire strike zone's not really established. You're facing the, the better part of the lineup. Yep. That lineup is a little bit more amped up. So what we used to do is sit down, and every Friday night we'd get together out of the season, and we would have what was called yellow book meetings. Yellow book meetings were scenarios that coach would put together, and it was what we'd call, for instance, in that opening uh, round of, or the opening inning, we'd call it the inevitable two. That 80% of the time, the starting home team pitcher gives up two runs in the first inning in college baseball during the era we played. And we didn't play during the gorilla bat era. That came on a little <laughs> bit after me. But what happened was what we had to do is say, look, if we know that it's very high risk that you're going to give up two runs until you get to the seven-hole hitter and you can get them out, and then the next thing you do, okay, don't be so mentally weak that you give up those two runs. So what you have to do is have a plan for it. Don't don't go out there assuming it's not going to happen. Go out there assuming it is going to happen and work through it. So trust the most most confident aspects of your game. Simplify your process. You know, I'm going to encourage the defense to make a play, and we're going to work through it. We're going to funnel the strike zone. Um, you know, 75% of all batted balls are outs, and that includes foul balls. So we're not going to pitch to contact, but we're not going to pitch away from it. Mm-hmm. So we would go out there with that mindset of knowing what to do. We also know that first pitch strikes matter. We know that 80% of the time, if you walk the leadoff batter, they score because they only need one hit and one advancement to score. Right. I would and say so, all walks score. Well, yeah. I mean, some walks are good. You know, I played against some guys that walks were really good. Yeah. Um, but what you wanted to do was to, to have a mindset, and it was to know the risk but find the purpose. And that was the moment that switched with me. I was such a risk-averse guy mm-hmm. that when I finally understood how to pitch in that moment. So those are the little things. And then Coach also called it graduation. And there were times we'd come in the locker room as a team and the graduation music would be playing in the locker room because he was looking for times when people graduated. They no longer needed the direct hand-holding. They figured out the game at a higher level. And he used to say, look – if you're going to play for me for one year or five years, you're going to get a PhD in baseball. There is no doubt in my mind that the players that played for coach and in our system, we knew the game at a way at a level that other people just simply didn't know because he taught you the why, the how, and the what. He didn't burden you. It was still your responsibility to figure out how to compete in the heat of the moment, but you just understood the game at a much higher level. I love that, man. When, when you look back on your career, what is it that you think about the most? Well, for me, and I, I talked about in the Mindside Manifesto, it was my hinge moment was, um, you know, it, it was a moment that changed my life. I, I was a, a sing, uh, an only child of a really great family. 
Um, I didn't hurt. I didn't want. My dad was military. He was also a pharmacist. Um, we moved around the country. I always played on the teams that weren't very good because we we're always new to an area. My dad played college baseball at the University of Toledo. He knew what he was talking about. Um, and when I went to LSU, you know, we won the national title my first year. We had seven major leaguers on that pitching staff. Um, but I was a part of every facet of it. I was the opposing home team pitcher or I was the opposing pitcher. So at the college world series, I went out there and pitched from 55 feet, um, instead of 60 feet because we wanted to work on high velocity pitchers, um, who ended up shelling. So it didn't matter. Um, but when, when I finally broke through, I broke through going into my third year and the game got really, really easy and coach called it. He said, when testosterone hits, I was a late bloomer. I only played one year of varsity baseball and when it hit, it was easy, but then I got injured and it really knocked me off my high horse because I thought I had figured it out. I thought I was going to be great. I thought, you know, I was filling out all the draft cards. I was the third pitcher on the number one team in the country. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Oh, here it goes. And then I couldn't comb my hair. And what was the um, injury? You know, they, they called it biceps tendonitis back then an impingement, but one of the Anders doctors that I work with here said, he said, you tore your labrum. Okay. okay, back in the early 90s, we didn't really image that. We just called it tendonitis. He's like, I'm sure that was the end of your career. I said, no, I pitched 100 times after that. And and so what happened was my mechanics changed, and I lost velocity, but I had to become better mentally. So going after we won the national title my third year, which I was supposed to be, I only pitched 10 innings, so I, I was a very small contributor. We, <clears throat> I went, I came back, and I was done. I couldn't break 80. Mm-hmm. I hated the game. I hated the conditioning for the game, which the year before I would have gone out and run, believe it or not, a five mile run was nothing. Okay. I mean, it was just like, let's go do this after practice. Let's hit it and get out of here. I felt so confident and powerful. The next year I was the exact opposite and I was getting bypassed by everybody. And I was throwing bullpens with the, the equipment manager. I mean, I was at this point, I was a GPA builder. So right before the season started, my parents sent me to a guy in town who was a, actually just a hypnotherapist. And he sat down, we started doing visualization and started focusing on what we wanted to do. And I had lost my mechanics so bad that the <clears throat> the freedom of movement that I had was so out of rhythm. And I made a small change in my mechanics, which I ended up not keeping, but it really got me on the right path. And I found a slider in the bullpen. And I was thrown with the volunteer assistant coach. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not even, coach right. is not even paying attention to me anymore. And all of a sudden, I figured something out. And the slider was, I could throw the slider as hard as I could throw my fastball. So when you got one going one way and one going the other, it was Mm -hmm. pretty dramatic. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt more connected when I threw the slider. And so I'm working with this guy, and I pitch a couple games early in the year, and I do okay. But I always struggled throughout my entire career starting an inning after having a good inning because I didn't want to mess up. You know, I I played the mindset of if you do everything right, good things are going to happen to you, which is just complete bogus, okay? And so I go out there and and I have a ball on my shelf back here somewhere over there. It's signed by Nolan Ryan and Nolan Ryan was at the game. His son was pitching and I come in relief of a game uh, against TCU and I get out of this just ridiculously bases loaded jam and get out of the inning. No runs. Come running off the field. There were no outs. I come running off the field and my coach grabs me and he says, look, if you want the good news or the bad news. And I was like, the good news. It's the best inning I've ever seen you pitch. And I thought he was going to take me out which I would have been okay with. I would have been like, dude, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, did my job. Don't have to go back out there. Well, he told me if I walked the next batter, I was being taken out. And I was all upset, and I did. I walked the next batter. He took me out. 
Next day comes around, I get out of another massive jam, and he gives the same thing. And what happened was, when I went back to work with this guy, the, the moment that changed my life was that question that he asked me. He wasn't being a jerk. He wasn't being a problem. He wasn't anything. What he was saying was, are you trying to prevent something from happening? Or are you going out there with intention and purpose to fight and battle? And when I changed my mindset to, I'm not trying to prevent mistakes, I'm trying to create outcomes. I've got to be the man in charge. If you hit a home run off me, that's fine. So what happened was that night, I changed my entire mindset about the way I competed, the way I pitched, everything. And that that switched my major to psychology. We had a really good friend of ours that was a clinical psychologist, so that's why I went into clinical. Um, I didn't even know about the sports and performance world. Um, but I went into clinical because I wanted to understand why I was so overrun by the fear and the negative thoughts. <clears throat> but because of that night, I ended up pitching. I led the team in appearances. I led the team in ERA. I led the team in fewest hits and whatever. I also led the team in home runs allowed, but that's a whole nother issue. They were only solo home runs, but you know, I pitched in the college world series. I was a chance. I, I was the man and it was so great because I really wasn't that good. Like if you looked at my velocity, I threw maybe 84 miles an hour in the SEC. So I had lost about eight miles an hour off my fastball. Um, but I had a slider I could throw 82 miles an hour too. And I hit the ball and my mechanics were so funky that an 82 mile an hour fastball looked like a 90 mile an hour fastball and the slider looked like it was 88. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> I was able to go around the lineup every time one time because it was so weird. Now, great hitters would figure me out very quickly. So I was a very spot reliever. I'd either come in the first inning or come in the ninth inning. I could get out of jams. But that was the moment. And it was a point from a coach. And so I went back and met with my coach about 10 years ago now. And um, and and I was sitting with him. His daughter was my advisor in grad school. And I sat down with him and I said, you know, you changed my life. And he knew the day. He knew the moment. I mean, this is 20 years later. And I think when we look at, you know, what I call catalyst, but when we look at people and what they do for us, as you call a hinge moment, that was a moment that somebody had the guts to challenge me and not try to make me feel good. It was somebody who knew, and he said, look, I waited three, four years to push you to that point where you had to start fighting for yourself. And that was the moment that all of a sudden I started realizing is like, look, we got to get after this. I mean, this is where we got to switch it. And, and it was great. If, it, if that didn't happen, I'd be an, an attorney um, and I would be miserable in my job. Lovely hinge moment, man, because, you know, most uh, most of the pitchers, I guess, will discover that uh, knuckleball instead of that slider. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. But then from that defensive mindset to that to that aggressive mindset, um, you know, when you took that first psychology class, though, you didn't you didn't like it at first, did you? No, no, no. I took I took a night class early on and I hated it. And what happened was I got mono during the course of the year and I didn't I mean, look, I was dating the wrong girl. I wouldn't stay through the whole class. I would leave after, I mean, I'd been on the practice field all day and then to go sit from a six to nine o'clock class at night was brutal um, after weights or whatever. And so, you know, I took it and I was like, eh, I hate this. The people were weird in the class. Um, the professor was hard to understand. And I got mono and I missed the last six weeks of the school year. Well, I actually had a D in the class, but that professor got fired. So he failed me. And so my dad had to go to the my, only time my dad has ever intervened because I was so sick. I mean, I was I was really, really sick. Um, and um, it just goes to show when you date the wrong people and you're under stress, bad things happen to you. Mm -hmm. um, probably another hinge moment there. But <laughs> the um, 
he he had to fight with the 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 department of psychology to allow me to retake the class and i i liked it i was always involved in self-help stuff i was always involved in i mean look I grew up reading Norman Vincent Peale's books. I grew up around people. I mean, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stayed at our house. You know, she was a lady who wrote on Death and Dying. Oh, yeah, nice. Um, so, you know, I've always been around those people my entire life. I, I, to see Wayne Dyer was nothing abnormal for me. Um, but I thought it was a soft science. And what I, what I was always gravitated to in psychology was the medical side of psychology, which is the application within medical communities and systems. So that class was so bizarre to me to talk about cognitive schemas and that I, like stupid stuff. And so I didn't immerse myself. When I changed my major and went back into it after my fourth year, uh, it was different. It was like an awakening that happened. I had great professors. I remember taking a, a comparative psychology class that looked at evolutionary psychology. I was fascinated by the animal systems and the what are the structures of penguin mating calls and things like that. I was just fascinated. I just immersed myself into it. And I was fortunate enough to get into grad school. Because um, you, you, you changed it last year, right? You made Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I had none of the traditional experience that made you recruitable for a clinical program, which in a clinical program – You'll get about 350 applications, and you're going to come in under a professor's research path. So what that means is you're going to be – they may take one person. So there will be 10 other clinical students. And so I was fortunate enough that one of our professors was a sleep researcher and a massive New York Yankees baseball fan. And he was from New York City. So he was from Brooklyn. And he needed somebody to do the grunt work of doing sleep research. And my coach's daughter had worked for him. And she was brilliant. She's passed away now. She had stomach cancer, but was one of the best psychologists I've ever been around, was a specialist in obsessive compulsive disorder. And she said, look, you need to take a chance on this guy. And I came in and I didn't have all the experience of writing and research and all the other things that went with it. I just had hunger. And it was, you know, when people say, look, just take a chance on me, that's what I was doing. I said, take a chance on me. And I just overworked everybody. And what happened was during our first year, my wife was in nursing school. I was in first year grad school, but the first week of grad school and nursing school, we found out my wife was pregnant. And so now that just amped it up. Like I couldn't miss. And so I may have had two hours of study, but being an athlete allowed me to understand how to prioritize my time. Yeah. And so while my daughter was sleeping, I could study and then I'd study at night. And, and then after about two years, two and a half years, after I finished my master's, I switched professors because the professor in sleep medicine, his grants had been canceled and he was done on the, he, he didn't want to publish anymore. And you know, from academics, publishing is how you become recruitable. And for internship, you had to have a certain number of, of publications, usually two good publications that you were first or secondary author in grad school. I didn't have any. So I switched to a professor who trained us like medical residents, which was 75 hours a week, full class load, full workload and full therapy load. And it was awesome. So I added another year to do that. Um, he was a brutally hard person to work with, but trained unbelievable psychologists. And that's what led me to go into Brown, um, which uh, <clears throat> by the time I left, I think I had four publications, which is comical because I've gone back and read them. They're just terrible, yeah. but that's okay. No, I get it. So yeah. what was the what was the story about the one research where you had to memorize all the answers to the MMPI? <laughs> okay, so... <clears throat> the um, so when when you're a um, in the clinical training, you have to do a specialty examination, and a specialty examination is a, is instead of a comp exam, which you probably did, 
our our school didn't i don't know if you had to do like a written competency examination at some point which showed yeah. that you were competent in the knowledge base our school years ago decided to not do that and make it an oral examination and uh, essentially a grilling they wanted to put people under stress and so what you would do is you would do it you would assess a patient without any supervision and then you'd write a 25 page paper on the illness and the treatment paradigm and then you'd be assigned randomly three professors that would come in and ask you anything under the umbrella of psychology and they would deem that you were prepared or not to move on to your dissertation all right <clears throat> so i did this i did a workup on a patient it was a chronic pain patient and you're really looking for somebody clean all right so where i trained was not clean it was a very difficult place to anyway i trained and i gave her the mmpi now my professor he knew every like he could tell you by looking at the profile what of the 580 questions were endorsed why when what they loaded that's how his professor was his professor mm -hmm. was extremely challenging to work for and so but we didn't use scales i still don't use scales today because we worked in a primary care setting and we worked on the medical floors you can't ask a patient with pneumonia to fill out an mmpi right so but you have to in this comp exam because people are going to ask you that that's clinicals or testers right um and so what I did was I gave her the MMPI and then I passed my I passed my specialty exam. Now, what I found out later is what happened was I was in the meeting and I was sailing. And one of my colleagues told me, if you don't know an answer to a question, just talk out some other questions. Right. And you'll show your knowledge base. And I can still remember the moment. I'm sitting there and I said, well, it's not a Cuda Richardson 20. And one of the professors goes, oh, what is a Cuda Richardson 20? And I, I blanked. And a Cuda Richardson 20 is a, is a psychological test that you use to look for reliability of test measures. Okay. Stupid. Nobody uses it anymore. Whatever. And I stumbled. And then they went in for the kill. They passed me. But when they brought me back in, they said, you were about two questions away from sailing. And you opened up the door and we got you rattled. And we almost didn't pass you. Okay, well, that's a bad reflection on my professor. So now what happened was I have to go now present the case to my professor because next week we have new – we have um, recruits coming in for grad school. And my role would be to present my case. And we, Every Thursday we presented cases for an hour and a half or two hours where he grilled us. Mm -hmm. Okay, And it, you had to do a full presentation. It was to prepare you for this stuff. And so when I presented it to him, he looked at the MMPI and goes, why is this scale like that? It's not consistent with your findings. And I went, yeah, I just kind of assumed that it was a, a aberrant score. And he went after me. Now, this was about 5 o'clock on Wednesday. I'm presenting at 5 o'clock on Thursday. Now, I've got a one-year-old, two-year-old daughter at this time. My wife's working nursing, swing shifts, everything. And he goes, well, why, what? And he started asking questions. I didn't have an answer. And he went to town on me and he said, you're not prepared to present tomorrow. And he just, that's how he was. He'd hang up the phone on you. He would do all kinds of stuff like that just to piss you off. And so I went home that night. I took home the MMPI. We didn't use computerized um, recording of, of answers at that time. And we still don't. And I went home and I, and I put on microfilm or whatever would go up on the overhead. Yeah. I, I went through every single question that this patient endorsed. And I look for the different loadings. And I stayed up all night. I didn't go to bed that night. 
I show up the next day, I do my full clinical caseload, I do my rounds at 6 a.m., whatever, and I have to present. Now, you know, I'm nervous, and I get up there in front of the audience, and there was probably 50 people in the room, and I go through it, and they're asking questions, and then I put the MMPI up. And Dr. Brantley, who was my professor, raises his hand, and he says, so, Brett, I'm really concerned. That doesn't match the clinical presentation. And I went, Phil, you're right, it doesn't. And then I pulled up all the questions that she had endorsed and where they were wrong. Not that they were wrong, but where it showed a disparate response. Right. And I said, so I dug in deep, and I'm going to tell you why it matches her. And he sat back in the thing, and he just smiled. And afterwards, he said, that's all I cared about. See, you were BSing me because you didn't do the work. Like, I don't care if it's disparate. Just tell me. This is... This, I'm going to have to retest her with another way because this doesn't match. So it got me thinking. You just assumed you didn't want to deal with it. That was a sign for me is to never, ever fake it. If you don't know, I don't know. You can say that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's got me – I'm, I'm stuck. It, it's a piece of information that doesn't match. Too many of us are, are trained to fake it. Well, what happens is you're going to get called to the carpet at some point where you can't fake it. And now you just completely lost your integrity with the individual that you're trying to fake it with. There's a, there's a saying, there's a joke in the medical, when you're doing medical rounds, they'll say, uh, what's the calcium? Uh, WNL or on the chart WNL within normal limits. What that means is we never looked. Okay. So they'll walk by and they'll just write WNL. That means they never looked. Well, that's what happened to me. It's like, we don't want to overtest. We don't want to overvalue somebody, but at the same time, don't BS me. And that was a moment for me to say, don't ever do that again. If you don't know, you don't know. The most powerful words of a practitioner or a coach or anybody can say is, I don't know. That's okay. Don't pretend that you do. People can call that BS immediately. Just say, I don't know. But I'm, I'm doing some more investigation to figure that out. But it's got me perplexed. I'm just, we don't have to be infallible. So, Where did that, uh, where did that, experience in that moment how did that apply then to later in life in your professional life well i mean you know i one of the things that i've done so before i before i did this job i worked eight and a half years in the pharmaceutical industry and i did a year and a half in clinical trial research on psychiatric drugs for merck research labs um and then i spent seven years in the field for bristol myers squibb working on a drug called abilify Abilify is uh, aripiprazole, which is a, a brilliant drug that is used to treat mental, severe mental illness, and it's also depression. Well, we'd go out and educate medical educators, thought leaders, the, the people who wrote the articles. We'd educate our medical team internally. We'd educate our marketing team, right? Well, you can't BS people there. Okay, first of all, the vast majority of the people we'd meet with, they'd have a they'd have a little bit of a skeptical slant to us, like, well, you're pharma. It's going to be fake research. Mm-hmm. No. People who are listening to this, let me just tell you something. The amount of study that goes into a drug to come to, to clinical trials is significant. Um, the data points are so scrutinized by the FDA that you, there's no faking it. There's no financial, you know, there, are, there have been atrocities, okay, in the pharmaceutical world, okay? There have been things that have been, okay, but 99% of them are above board. So when you go up and give a presentation in front of a state Medicaid agency and they'd ask you a question or, you know, you'd have a, let's say a urologist sitting on the board and you've got two minutes to give a a statement about why your drug should be allowed for Medicaid patients. And they say, what is the urinary retention stats? 
the hell? Why did that? Well, for a urologist, that's what they know. They want to know that it's an anticholinergic medication that causes people to have a hard time to urinate. Okay. He doesn't want to have people calling his office saying, I'm taking this drug and I can't pee. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you can't say, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can't, you can't make it up because he'll, he's got the data right there. He's got it circled. So you'd have to say, you know, that's a good question. I'll get that medical data back to you. And what it taught me was to be extremely prepared. But I had a, I had a moment that happened in that job um, that kind of reinforced that hinge moment. So we had a drug that came out um, that was a patch that people wore for depression. And it was an old drug that used to have issues with cheese and stuff like that. It bypassed all that issue. Drug was extremely effective, but nobody wanted to take it because a lot of people had learned that those types of drugs were really difficult for people to tolerate. So we were at the sales meeting where we trained our sales team. And I was sitting, I was answering questions. And the sales team was doing their job. They were asking questions that they're going to get. Well, they didn't, evidently the director didn't like my nature of answering the questions, which was, I was like, that's not important. This is important. And then about three weeks later, I went to a meeting and I walked into a a rural Mississippi community mental health center Mm -hmm. and I took my tie off because it was a 7 a.m. Friday morning lunch, uh, breakfast. I'm, I know that area. Okay. You don't wear a tie in there because they all of a sudden, so I took it off. Yeah. Well, the, the rep there did not care for, and, and by the way, they also in the presentation, they, they, they didn't, they purposely did not bring a projector. So I had to present without slides. So I, what I did is I took the product insert and I went through it. Well, the report went up to the home office that I chose not to give a presentation. I showed up unprepared and I was too casual. So I get a call from my manager who said, Hey, whatever. And pretty much said, look, you're on probation. Hmm. And I didn't really want to be in the job anymore, but that's not how I wanted to exit the job. So I was with my dad when that happened. And he said, well, now you have a chance to prove him wrong. So I, once again, I became the expert on depression. Well, depression and primary care was one of my expertises, but I was like, okay, screw it. Every presentation I give, people are going to get a a world-class presentation. And I did it out of spite for a year and a half. And that led me to having an opportunity to create the program that I created that transitioned me into what I'm doing, which was a psychological-based program for education. So there you go. Long story. So, I mean, we've delved into uh, some awesome hinge moments, man, that, that oh, you yeah. shared. Awesome. I love it. So with the yeah. current state that, that we're going in in the country and the world with COVID-19, with the pandemic, uh, quarantine, uh, and you've mentioned depression. Um, now, I, I realize that speculation is the mother of all evil. But where do you see, where do you see the biggest issues um, coming from in terms of, you know, what we're all going to be experiencing? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think the concern is that we, we've already got a growing mental health concern in this, in this country. Our anxiety rates are approaching 40 to 50% of our young athletes and our young population because of the standards of which they measure themselves. Our demands are unbelievable. You know, when I was in high school back in graduated in the fall of 19 or spring of 1990, nobody in our school had a perfect score in an ACT my daughter's high school when she graduated last year had four. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's stupid. First of all, it's a bad test. Okay. Um, because people are able to study to a test and not study. And we know that the ACT has no predictive value of somebody's academic pursuits at college. Um, but when we look on social media, we say, Oh, that's somebody who's, well, that person's got a hundred thousand followers and they own their own boutique and they're 19. 
Okay, that's not that's not normal. That's a that's an outlier. Whether or not it's accurate or not is a whole other question. So we have a burdening growth of um, anxiety. The th- concern that I have from COVID is that we're we're adding in such stress into an already stressed environment, and stress, both major and minor life stress, increases the risk of depression and anxiety from a couple reasons. One is it overwhelms our coping mechanisms, and our traditional coping mechanisms that we would normally be able to manage COVID um, have been taken away from us. You're not able to socially interact, and while we can do things through Zoom or our teleconferencing, it's not the same as the energy transfer that happens when people are in the same room. Right. Um, we we can't go out and and do things that allows us to alleviate stress. Um, in you know while we say go out and exercise, there's a lot of towns that people get very scornful looks when they do that, and you've got these people who are taking pictures of groups and sending them in, and so now you feel like you're being watched and observed. Um, you're losing the financial securities, okay? So there's a lot of that. So my concern is over time <clears throat> is that we're going to have a six-month lag of of a, a, a blossoming of depression and some additional anxiety as we pick up the pieces from this. The I'd say 30% of the American public is going to have no problem picking up the pieces and they're going to surge. But what's going to happen for the 70% that are left behind who have to deal with a $1,500 stimulus check that didn't cover the bills, right? Um, I mean, when you think about a cell phone bill is $100, you know, we, we got a problem there. So I think the concern is that we've got to get back to some of the factors and not not assume that this is going to be a fast return. Um, you know, after Hurricane Katrina decimated New Orleans, it was a three to five year rebuilding plan. Yeah, um, It's not a next season we're ready to go. And I think coronavirus is going to be much of the same way. So from a psychological standpoint, I'm hoping that what what happens is this opens the doors for people to say, you know what, mental health issues are not a weakness. Mental health issues is a sign of strength to go out there and find somebody that can help connect to me. There are so many powerful people, whether it's your pastor, whether it's a local marriage and family counselor, a substance abuse counselor, um, somebody that can help motivate you and get you over the hump to somebody who can you know, help you at different, the continuum is so important. And we assume that everybody has to enter the continuum at the same spot. They don't, you know, you could, you could go sit with your pastor once a week and have a significantly more therapeutic response. If we have to diagnose and go at a much higher level, then go to that side. Okay. But people who are having life stress don't need to be diagnosed. Okay. Sometimes it's just like, like I had a call from one of my players the other day. He's like, man, I need help dealing with my wife right now. She takes care of life when I'm gone, and I'm back in her world now. And man, one is she does an amazing job, but I am screwing everything up. Right, right. How do I manage that? That's not diagnosable. That's life stuff, man. Let's sit down and problem solve. And I think if we can admit, as men, as women, you know, our our moms think they are women in our lives who are moms think they have to be superwomen. Um, they have to have everything together. They have to look right. They have to do their exercise. They have to cook dinner. They have to get the kids through school. They have to do their job at work. The man comes home and sits on the couch and has a drink. Okay. So we have to develop some better community within our own homes to be healthier and happier and more joyous. And we have to realize that I I think the biggest issue is what happened in 2008 is it's not the fact that we can look around and go, okay, I'm in rubbles. It's the fact of what's the next shoe to drop. Right. And every time I see states coming out and limiting additional movement within public parks, I think what they're doing is they're driving a nail in people's mental health. 
Um, we need to allow the public open space and assume personal responsibility. If, if you choose to be in a group of 30 people, then you put people at risk. Okay. Then yes, it may cause the virus to spread, but we're starting to see treatments working. Don't at me on this. I'm not getting into any debates on this. Uh, people who are listening to this, I love you, but I'm not going to get into debates. But people I know, the research I've looked at, the clinical trial research, it's coming. Okay. We're going to heed this off. But we need some things in our life to go. And when we limit parks, beaches, golf courses, places like that, we're hurting people at the core. People are not healthy staying in their homes. People need to get sunlight. They need to get vitamin D. They need to get fresh air. They need to move. They need to have purpose every day. Um, and, and so I think we really need to look at this from a mental health standpoint and say, there are certain safeguards that we always need to have in place. You know what I think it's it has done, though? I don't know if you've noticed this. I've seen your videos with your son playing golf. How many more dads and parents are out fishing with their kids? They're walking in the neighborhoods. Maybe we're getting back a little bit to a Norman Rockwall experiment, experience. I mean, during this time, I've decided to close my office. I'm not going to maintain an office anymore. Don't need it. Don't need it. Don't want it. Don't want the stress, the overhead. I'd rather be home and do my work in my home office. Um and you're going to see a lot more of that, yeah. I think. Yeah, I, I love those takes, man. I think there's a lot to that. I, I definitely think um, there will be some good that comes out of this as of well. My question is, um, and my son's obsessed with golf. I don't know yeah. where I don't know where he gets it from, man. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, but it's uh, it is fun to be able to do that with him. My question that I, I kind of want to take the conversation is. Um, you know the adversity it uh, it does build the mental toughness muscle you know that grit that resiliency but it also reveals it like what do you think is i guess let me let me take it this way like the part that i see as being really impactful is that is that loss of connection that we have with one another is that teams you know aren't you know we we don't connect right and we start mm -hmm. to look at people not as connections now, but as threats. And the reason why is because when we get isolated, as you know, the brain then starts to change with it and it looks mm -hmm. at everything as a threat, not as this is an environment where I can assimilate. Mm -hmm. What, um, how do we combat that here with the fallout from um, being able to make that connections with people? It, it doesn't take long. You know, remember, there's neurotransmitters that are released in the brain when we connect to others. But one thing you got to remember is prisoners of war that are in con or in or in in prison stance, like those that went through the um, uh, the death marches in the Philippines um, or concentration camps. What what they would do in in Nazi Germany is those prisoners would actually um, create community and. Um, the Bataan Death March, the, when they freed them, they realized that the prisoners of war who had been in there for many, many years in the jungles of the Philippines had actually created street systems. Friday night was Broadway night. Um, and within that, they created culture within. We know from the, those that were in the Hanoi Hilton that they created their own communication strategy by knocking. Um, so we're extremely adaptable. What, what has to happen is, is we look at this and we say, look, it's a new way, but we're always evolving and always changing, Okay. This has the, the, the biggest problem with COVID is the unknown. Right. We have a silent attacker that we don't know if is up or down. And we have extreme distrust in authority in this country right now, whether it's media, politics, experts. Um, I think there are going to be two major things that are going to come out of this. I think, uh, or I hope, 
I hope we see a validation and verification of epidemiological models. Okay, I think there was extreme um, fear-based modeling that happened. It may have been accurate, and it may have been what was needed, but we, we didn't know when they said the IMHE model was accurate. Why? Who? Based on how many other predictions have they made? Right. You, you don't follow a meteorologist if it's their first day and they have no experience. Okay. And two is that there's no verification of who's reporting the news. Yeah. Okay. So I think I'm hoping that somebody would take the lead on those two things. But I think the connection to us is once we get back out and get moving, we will create our community the way that we have to. Um, the excitement, I, I've broken this down into three phases, is that we're still in the endurance phase. The endurance is we don't know when the end is. It'd be like you going out on one of your crazy long runs, and I didn't tell you how long you had to run for. Changes your mind. You yeah. don't know how long to – okay. And I'm – then once we know that there's an end in place, we're going to move into the emergence phase, which is us putting our pieces back together. The last phase is going to be our execution phase when we get back to normal. You know, our football teams are playing again and stuff like that. We're still in endurance. I we I mean, Alabama for for I can't understand it. Just extended the stay-at-home order for two more weeks. Like I really, based on our exposure and our risk and our health right now, I don't get it. Um, it, it was a shocking answer because there was really no evidence in our community as to why. Um, you know, some states, we're going to see Georgia, Tennessee, and some of those states figure out, do we see a blossom or not? I think all of that, once we can uh, let go of what we can't control and focus on what we can control, you'll see this growth happen. And yes, adversity helps build us. The problem is, I think that most of us don't fear struggle. We don't fear adversity. We don't fear misery. We're good at dealing with it because we've done it. We fear the moment that we've realized we failed. We fear the, that moment, like if you've ever played craps, that moment when you see the die and you go, oh, it's a seven, that moment. Because as soon as you see it's a seven, they rake in your chips and here you go again. Like you build back up and that's the mental toughness you're talking about. It's that moment of, oh, crap. Okay, it's that moment when you look up at the scoreboard in a game and you realize – there's four minutes to go. We're down by three touchdowns. We don't have a chance. Oh, yeah, we don't have the ball either. Okay. You know, except for the Hail Marys, it's that realization that I have to accept it. That's where we are in our society right now is now we're all accepting it. And that we fought it for a while. Now you're starting to get the antsiness. What concerns me about this antsiness is that we're fighting a war that in the public sector that we have no control over. It doesn't matter how much we bark, beg, plead, whatever. They're going to arrest you in some cities if you go out. I mean, it's like, what the hell's going on here? Now, I know people are going to at me and they're going to tell me I'm an idiot for saying all this. I'm just telling you what people are saying. I'm not saying I agree with it or disagree with it. I'm just telling you what's happening. So, How, how is it that you see those that are going to adapt the best? Uh, what, what are those mental skills? Uh, what's, what's the paradigm? What's the philosophy? What is it that, that they will have that you think will be an advantage? I think ultimately the first thing is self-efficacy is that they can figure out, they believe that they can endure this, right? Yeah. It's the ultimate saying of Ernie Zamperini when he was, when oh, he yeah. crashed into the Indian Ocean, he said, what's the longest time anybody's ever lived in a raft in the open water? Yeah. It wasn't, oh crap, what happened to me? He flipped it, okay? So I think self-efficacy is important. I think self-determination is also, what's our goal right now? If, if we are all thinking that college football season is going to look identical, it's not. Okay, so I'm not going to say let's lower the game, but let's change our scope here. Like right now, let's play the game. PGA Tour, people can't believe that they're going to go back without fans. 
be thankful they're going back out without fans. Mm-hmm. Like that's a low level entry that we can do. Awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. I think after two weeks, you're going to probably see them say, uh, maybe we can have some fans. Um, so I think the skills are identifying what you want to accomplish during this time, the belief that you can do it, and then the, the resolve to continue to push because the motivation changes after you get started. So finding that purpose to stay in it is critical. Um, yeah, I don't know if there is a formal theory for that or what. I've never remembered theories or understandings. I mean, I have a hard enough time remembering Piaget. So, um, but my redneck way of looking at it is the people need to say, what is it that you want? How are you going to get there? How are you going to keep pushing? Yeah. So with people that uh, their philosophy is, you know, get after it, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody like that. You know, yeah, what, I right. mean, but uh, yeah. is that a bad philosophy to take? Because the conversation that I have with my kids all the time is, um, you know, we're Sisyphus, man. We're, we're pushing that rock up that hill and we don't know what that goal is, but uh, you're going to learn stuff about yourself in this situation and, and we're going to keep getting after it because when this is over, um, you're going to be in better position than what you were heading in. Yeah, I've actually loved watching your social media because, you know, you've got your kids out there doing things and, and doing, quote, PE that other people aren't, right? Yeah. And I think it's wonderful. And, and I think the skill there is not the fact that my dad made me do something. It's the fact that I can turn anything into something that's beneficial to me, right? Um, you know, it, it's the Viktor Frankl approach of while I'm sitting in Auschwitz, I can find the purpose for my suffering. That's right. I, I can find something to work towards, right? We, we always do that. Why is it that kids in cancer wards have better attitudes than most of our society? You know, I had a, a family member that died of Wilms tumor, which very significant tumor on the kidney. Uh, they don't live very long. And she had the, her, her mom and her mom is a cousin of mine is, is passed away. It was not a good person. Okay. Um, you know, stealing her pain meds and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but why is it that she, the daughter had this unbelievable mindset that it was like, listen to her. She's brilliant. Like that, that is a ray of light in our life, y'all. Okay, so what you you know what we're doing with our kids is to say, look, this is the challenge. This is the hand that's been dealt to you. You can you can get after it, or you can get beat up by it. And there's moments you're going to feel both ways, but it's not all or nothing. Yeah. Let's find a way to win in something. Let's find a way to win in some facet or purpose or whatever, and that builds confidence. And you know, it's kind of like I. You know, I, I don't enjoy exercise. Okay. Now, I know some people don't. Some people do. I don't enjoy it because for the longest time, exercise for me was, was, had a, it was, it had a, it had a goal, it had a, a purpose associated with it. It wasn't for feeling good, it was for meeting a demand. Mm-hmm. Well, when I lost that demand, then I stopped exercising. Well, then starting it again sucks. Like it beats the crap out of you. Like I didn't enjoy it. I, I, I didn't do it so my pants would fit better. And I went to the doctor multiple times and said, show me my labs are bad. And they're like, no, your labs are fine. I'm like, oh, crap. I needed something to meet it, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's in our life, we have to understand sometimes what our, our fire and drive is. But it's also there are times for, you know, like when I see what you guys do, I'm, I'm inspired by that. But at the same time, we all have things in our life where we we choose to put that energy. And so, you know, it's like, you know, what is it that makes somebody go through a special forces training, combat controller training, or SEAL training, or ranger training? 
that's a different mindset is my buddy who went through it said was a seal he said look you just find the next rock mm-hmm. okay well i need to know what the rock is that's just my mindset that's probably why i'm not one right what what is it that you know even you know your personal professional life man what is it that that drives you um you know i i, I wanted i was fascinated by the the pursuit um I feel like, to be honest, I feel like that we do most things that we do in our industry. We do it because that's what the convention is. I don't think it's always the best way to do it. What, um, what do you mean by that? Sorry. Well, I mean, you know, okay. When you're in clinical training, mm-hmm. um, the people who are training you are either professors or they're adjunct clinical pr- practitioners. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So those are the only two things that they know. Yeah. So I was always fascinated. It's like, look, it's a critical thinking degree. Like there's a lot of different ways uh, to apply this. Um, is it, you know, do we have to, you know, do we have to perform the way that we've always performed? Okay. Do we have to do it this way? Because that's what people always say it is. Why? Um, so I think what drives me in this is there's other ways to do things. There's ways to look at it, to do it better. Ultimately what drove me in one facet of it is, is I wanted to figure out the game of performance psychology in a way that was different because I was different. I was never the guy who followed the normal way. Um, I always I think found that's why I like you, man. Maybe, but it was may, maybe because I, I like. Why do we have to like? I'll say, why do we have to in this in yours and my field? Why do we have to be so into routines? Like, well, that's because that's where most people knew where to go for so long. I don't care if you lick your lips three times and hit a shot. There's a couple elements like you do. You look at a couple elements and routines that are important that you could see that oh, it's a problem. But I'm not sitting there saying it has to be this way. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there are people out there who that's what their mental coach is really good at is seeing the routines. And that's that's fine. Um, and I when I started this, I kept trying. I would follow people in our field. I'd be like, okay, they do it that way. Okay. okay. And then I realized I was like, hell, just do it. If it works for you, it works for you. But there are people that come see you that would bomb with me and they need you because you have your own unique fingerprint. You have your own catalyst men- mentality. You meet the demands of the people when they come to you. And, you know, we are not Cheesecake Factory. We don't have 27 cuisines on our menu. You and I have a specialty and it's unique. And it's different, and it makes that connection different. So the players that work with you, that stay with you, have gotten into that groove like a good pair of jeans. They understand the way that you coach, you develop. I've got other guys that have flipped through me, and they've gone to somewhere else, and they've done amazing. And I hear, well, you know, as I've heard from a coach, well, he tells the same thing to everybody. I'm like, no, I don't. Okay. Um, I've had a coach say, you know, Brett doesn't won't sit down and have a bourbon with you and talk about your game. I'm like, well, the kid's 17. I'm not doing that. Okay. (laughs) But he's referred to another person because that's what that guy does. That's not my thing. Some people love Bob Rotella because Bob has got that wisdom and that depth of understanding. Some people go see, you know, um, somebody else because they come more from the spiritual side. That's wonderful. Like what I want to do is also say, Hey, this is the way that I do it. Right. Wrong or indifferent. I think Billy has said it the best, right? I don't know what I work on when I work with Brett, but I always get better. And I'm like, that's the best compliment you can give me because I'm working on you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, anyway, that's kind of me. Well, I think that's why I appreciate you so much, man. I think what, 
And ultimately, I mean, I, I think you and I can both agree here. I mean, our job is to build that that capacity in our athletes, right? So they figure it out. Yeah. And, and working ourselves out of a job is not the best business model, but you and I both know if we do that, then yeah. look, there's always going to be plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess one more question I have to ask then, too, because I was asked this in a podcast, and I, I had to answer it. Look, I don't know. What do you think is the difference and I guess we got to look at all different sports here, but the difference between those that are uh, reaching the championship, holding up the trophy, um, gold medal winners, as opposed to those that are just making the finals at uh, at the Olympic Games. I mean, both. I mean, we were splitting hairs when it comes to their, uh, you know, the full potential and the outcome. What do you think is what do you think is that that separator though? I don't know if it's a this is the one variable. I mean, I think right. I use success. I use a formula for success, which is you got your skills and your talents. It's how you apply those skills and talents under pressure. It's your mental flexibility, and then there's some luck there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know everybody's got a different formula. It's it's the ultimate regression model, but it's the fact of you know Michael Phelps had a tremendous skill and talent with a certain body movement. Okay. But he didn't win on talent alone. He was able to apply it under pressure. And he didn't get better under pressure. I mean, we know people don't actually improve under the high-stress moments. But he, he, he performed at the level that he, that he trained at. Okay? He was also mentally flexible. Mm-hmm. He was able to enter a couple of Olympics not being as trained as he probably should be, but took that instead as a chip on the shoulder. Okay. And then some circumstance, some good things happen, right? Now you got Ryan Lochte, who's also an elite swimmer of all time, but he needed Michael Phelps to draft against. The problem with that is he also created his competition. So when he called out Michael Phelps in the swimming world, I mean, you know swimming better than I do, that just fired up Michael Phelps. Okay. If he doesn't say anything, I don't know if Michael really buys into that. Okay. But Ryan needed to say something. So, you know, what is it about teams that win? There's also a, a lot of luck. Right. You know, Alabama football dynasty, well, they've also had three years in the pre-playoff or two or three years where they had to have a collapse of teams in order to get into the game, okay? That year they beat LSU in the national title game. They had to have an absolute collapse around them to get in. They did. Um, Was that the 9-6 to six game? Yeah, I mean, when LSU beat them 9-6 and they came back and beat them 21 nothing in the yeah. championship game, yeah. they needed to have some factors happen. When LSU won the national title against Ohio State, they had to have two teams lose in the championship weekend because LSU had lost to Arkansas the weekend before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happened. So there is a certain aspect of luck. And some of the other luck is being in an environment where um, you, you, you all of a sudden gain that mastery, that self-belief in yourself that you're actually really good. Um, and you know, I remember pitching against a guy in college and getting him out and thinking, if I can get him out, I can get anyone out. Yeah. Now, he may have gone up to the plate with a 40% mindset. He may have been thinking about something else, but it gave me a boost of confidence, right? Um, you know, and so I think what makes what's that ultimate separator is, I don't know if we'll ever be able to measure it. I think the best of the best do two things better than everybody else. They find their extra motivation, which is usually a chip on the shoulder of something. Yeah. Michael Jordan believed that people disrespected him and they thought his dad preferred his brother over him while he loved his dad, his dad loved him, he, his dad knew how to motivate him. Um, Kobe felt that he wanted to be the best to ever play, but felt like he lacked talent, so he needed to make it up in work ethic. 
Jerry Rice wanted to become the best wide receiver of ever, but doubted his um, his ability to, to his talent, and he felt that the 49ers were going to draft somebody more talented than him eventually, and they did. And To, um, and so you have to learn to find what that is inside you. You don't have to share it to the world. You know, Tom Brady still holds today the draft card. Okay, at 42, greatest quarterback to ever play the game. Come on, but that tells you what it is. Um, you know, Tiger wanted one thing. You know, Rory wants another. Um, the best can find that. The other one is that, to me, they're the most mentally flexible. So they don't, while while danger hurts, stress hurts them, I think the best, I mean, Coach Saban, you know, is the best college, is the best football coach to ever coach in college. Um, it hurts them when they lose, right? And he'll say, I hate the pain of losing more than I love the joy of winning. Yep. Well, he's not coached to not lose. Okay, he uses the angst of losing because he feels that he failed his people. Okay, and so his thing is that I will never quit on somebody. I will never not. My coach wanted to be, I mean, I think he would pretty much tell you he wanted to be the best college baseball coach to ever coach the game. He was in yep. the scholarship era. Um, but he also would tell us all the time how good he was. I mean, there was a moment it was before we went on the field one day. We were playing a top-ranked team like Florida State or somebody who, um, and he goes, "Look, guys, they don't have me in their dugout." Okay, that's a very powerful statement for you to believe in. Yeah. When they the the hinge moment for LSU baseball was the 1989 regional where they went into Texas A&M and had to beat the greatest college baseball team to ever play the game. They were 55 and three going into the at home. They beat them twice to beat them. And what happened was that morning before they played the first game, he sat down with the team and went through the stats and said, guys, these stats are frauds. The starting pitcher is 13-1 and with a 3.9 ERA. That's not good. My eighth pitcher could pitch on this staff as their ace. And it got the angle. So they were he was able to find the mental flexibility to say, here's the angle. Here's the Achilles heel. And here's our strength. We're going to match our strength against their Achilles heel. They can't do that. They don't play the game like we do. And I think everybody, the best of the best, are able to find that ankle. I, I love that video of Phelps at the Olympics when the guy was standing in front of him dancing. And Phelps was like, like seriously, it was like a, a mouse dancing in front of a cat. Like, are you serious? Like, you're really doing this to me. Like, you don't, I don't even know your name, dude. Okay? And then he just trounced him. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like the best are able to tap into that chip and be mentally flexible to say, man, I didn't feel good, but I found a way. Yeah. Man, I've learned so much from this podcast. I've I've got, um, and I'm glad we had this. I appreciate you oh, taking excellent. the time, man. Absolutely. I've got A little one, bit more than 15 minutes, right? Well, I always say this, and, and it, it's uh, we get probably 15 minutes of knowledge out of this. I mean, you and I have read countless of books, yeah. and, and I can remember – Hey, this is what I got out of Mindside Manifesto, but it, I, I got to go back through it, you know. So I always say, right. look, we're at least going to get fifteen minutes of of good content out of it, yeah. Um, and and more from yeah. uh, from you. Yeah. I'm w- I'm with you. Most of my books, like I once I find the nugget, I'm done. Yeah, I got one more question, man. Yeah, and um, I can't wait to get you a puke and rally. Yes, it, please do send it to me. What's one question that I should be asking that I'm not asking, Doc? And. I mean, I, I have no idea. You know, I think in life, I mean, I think it's, um, 
you know, I'm, uh, I don't know. That's a great question. I mean, it stumped me. Um, you know, I, I, I think the main thing that we have to do in life is ultimately just trust our instincts on things, whether we're interacting with others or we're doing podcasts, you know, every time I've tried to be something I'm not, I bomb, um, you know, like, I've said this a couple times, like, I don't know why I go out and walk fairways at golf tournaments. I do it because my guys are available during that time, but, um, I don't really enjoy Like, I don't, what am I going to offer them on the golf course? Like for me, for me, other people have different things. Mo does his stuff that he, you know, that's his formula and all that. But for me, I'd rather meet in the hotel room. I'd rather meet over breakfast. Um, I, so I think, I think maybe a question that a lot of people should ask better is what do you like? You know, what is it that you really like when you're playing at your best? What do you, what do you really like? And I find that, you know, I, I forget that cause we think, Oh, this is the way it is. But you know, I, I tell this to all the coaches I work with is, have you ever asked a player the way that they want to be coached? Mm-hmm. Like we assume that you're just going to start coaching them and they're going to adapt. Not anymore. People don't assimilate into a coaching mechanism anymore. The coaches need to assimilate and adapt. And if you don't ask them, then you don't know. And so if you don't ask them, then you're going to have to, you're going to waste time in the friction moments until you figure that out. And so I think maybe that's probably the best facet is how do you like to be coached and led? Doc, Maybe. thanks, Doc. Thanks so much for the time. Ah, man. thank you. I'm thanks gonna, for your friendship. I'm going to put the links in here as well. But uh, okay. where, where would you want people to uh, to follow you? Yeah, you can obviously follow me on my social media at Dr. Brett McCabe. Um, you can also go to thecatalystschool.com. It's a new product, a new platform we have coming out about how people in our industry as coaches, leaders, managers, or catalysts for others. Um, tons of free content there, um, and also some really cool stuff coming. So um, uh, I appreciate everything that you do. Um, send me a copy of the book. Let's, let's get this thing going and puke and rally for somebody who's terrified of puking. Um, I never want to get to that spot in exercise, but you know, here we go. Appreciate you, doc. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the mental toughness podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.